This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Every now and again, when there's news about the ringgit becoming weaker, there will also be subsequent debates on whether our overnight policy rate, OPR, should be adjusted. But what exactly is OPR? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Professor Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. Welcome back to the show, Jeffrey. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good as well. Um, I just want to start this conversation by, again, definitions. What is overnight policy rate, OPR? Okay, the overnight policy rate is basically the interest rate on uh, loans that uh, commercial banks borrow from uh, the bank, uh, the central bank, Bank Nagara. Uh, and the reason that they borrow these loans or take out these loans is to finance their day-to-day um, activities. That's why it's overnight, because they, different days, they will have more or less activity. And if they have a, a lot of activity, then they may not have sufficient deposits to deal with that. So they will borrow a little bit of money from Bank Nagara. And then the overnight policy rate is how much Bank Nagara charged them for that loan. Right. Give uh, further Dive further into that. Because for people who are not familiar with economy or economics, um, the term overnight policy rate makes no sense. Why overnight? What does that even mean? Just looking at the term doesn't tell me anything. So why is it called overnight policy rate? Because it's the um, interest rate on immediately available funds. So And, and uh, as I mentioned, commercial banks will retain some funds. When we go in and make deposits, you make a hundred ringgit deposit in a bank, the bank doesn't keep the whole of the 100 ringgit in, locked in its safe. Mm. It only keeps a part of that. And that um, that's uh, called the deposit ratio. And uh, that ratio is for day-to-day transactions, people coming in and going out. But now, of course, it's for electronic transactions. So it's less important than it has been in the past. So if there's a, a lot of activity on one particular day, they may not have... Uh, enough in terms of the deposits available in the bank. So what they do is they borrow it a little bit. Uh, It's only tiny amounts of money they borrow it from the central bank. Right. Then they immediately pay it back the next day when they have cleared their balances. So that's very interesting, right? This might be a little bit of a tangent, but you mentioned that when we put in a deposit, for example, 100 ringgit, um, you know, the bank doesn't take the whole of it. Um, there is a certain percentage. Could you explain that to me? When I put in 100 ringgit, where does the money go? Okay, so you, if you put in 100 ringgit, the bank will keep a percentage of that. Let's say 10 ringgit, 10%. And they keep that in order to deal with day-to-day transactions for other people. Because you want, I mean, the reason you put the money in the bank is that you don't need it every single day. You put it in a savings account, for example. So people will come in every day doing transactions, putting money in and taking money out. And the banks don't need to keep all of that money locked in their safes. So what they do is they keep a part of it, let's say 10% of it, and then the balance of 90%, they use that for other things. And particularly, they use that for issuing loans to customers. Mm. 
And then that means that you can go to the bank, not just to make a deposit uh, to uh, and to withdraw on that deposit, but they, the bank will then also lend part of those deposits to other people. And then the bank becomes a lending institution as well as a savings institution. Right. So, Jeffrey, why is it that whenever there's news about the ring, ringgit becoming weaker and say, oh, today the ringgit is at an all-time low low compared to the US dollar or all-time low compared to the Singapore dollar, for example, and then you will have this debate whether or not they should um, adjust the OPR. So what is the connection between OPR? What's the relationship between OPR and exchange rates? Okay, well, th this this is a huge debate because if you were to ask me, I would tell you there isn't any. Okay, and that's because I mean okay. I did a PhD in financial econometrics, and uh, what I did, I, I did a great deal of work on um, on exchange rates, and uh, certainly the day to day exchange rate is driven by market sentiment. Uh, it's driven by financial flows of people who want to buy and sell um, currencies. And th those market sentiments are driven by news events and places where you can make money and where you're going to lose money if you hold it too long. In other words, it's a very speculative, uh, free-flowing, free-market um, uh, system. Right. It's probably one of the freest market systems in the world in foreign exchange. And what that means, certainly on a day-to-day -day basis, the market is driven by news. And we say it's a random walk, really. Sometimes people say it's a random walk of drift. And what that means is that it's responding to the news uh, minute by minute, second right. by second. It's not being driven by anything in particular on a day-to-day -day basis or a minute-by-minute -minute basis. But then, of course, in, in the longer term, the exchange rate is the value of your currency. And the value of your currency is related to the value of your economy. Mm -hmm. And so we often say that um, the exchange rate in the long term is determined by the fundamentals of the economy. And the fundamentals of the economy are based on real economic activity, production, um, investment, uh, buying and selling of real goods and services. How many people are employed? Is the economy growing? And all of that. And the interest rate affects that. So if there is an interest differential between your economy and someone else's economy, investors will, will sell your currency and buy the currency where they can get a higher interest rate. Right. And this is uh, sort of the interest rate differential theory uh, in terms of the uh, determination of the exchange rate. And that happens in the medium to longer term. In the very long term, the exchange rate is dependent upon the fundamentals of the economy. And the fundamentals of the economy are determined by many, many factors. But in terms of um, the interest rate, they were um, affected by the policy stance of the central bank because the central bank determines the interest rate. So that's very interesting, right? Because according to you, there is no relationship uh, between the OPR and and the exchange rates, and that is uh, one particular school of thought. But no, no, there is no stable or forecastable relationship in the in the very short term between um, the uh, exchange the the exchange rate and the interest differential in the very short term. 
So what is the other school of thought? Because like you uh, rightfully um, mentioned as well, it's a debate. It's always a debate whenever, you know, there's exchange rate fluctuates and things like that. Should we adjust the OPR and all? Where is that school of thought coming from? Okay, so that school of thought says that when we're talking about the exchange rate, it's about buying and selling of currencies. You buy, uh, you sell ringgit to buy dollars. And you will do that because... Uh, you're going to get a better return on dollars. And uh, the interest rate is one of the basic measures of the financial return on the currency. So if you had dollars and you invested it in an American bank, you would be getting 5% or more. If you have ringgit and you invest it in a, a Malaysian bank, you'll be lucky to get 3% on a fixed deposit. If you invest it in a current account, you get basically nothing. So what uh, people are um, saying when they're talking about the interest differential is they say, I only get 3% on ringgit, I get 5 or 6% on dollars, so I'm going to sell ringgit and buy dollars because I get a higher interest rate. Right. And that's why they claim that the exchange rate is driven by interest differentials, interest rate differentials. In the medium term, it might be. In the very short term, it's driven by news. And then in the medium term, it's true, it might, you know, there is a relationship between the interest differentials. Right. In the long term, the um, the exchange rate is driven by economic fundamentals. So if you ask yourself the question, why is it that there's been a long-term decline uh, or long-term depreciation in the ringgit? And that's because of economic fundamentals. It's not because of interest rates. So to understand the OPR even deeper, I, I feel we must understand what a central bank is. So what's a central bank? A central bank is an institution that manages a, a country's currency, its money, its money supply, and uh, also uh, handles the country's monetary policy. Um, it, in many countries, and certainly here in Malaysia, the central bank also looks after the financial system hmm. and it looks after financial stability and what we call prudential policy looking after the balance sheets of the banks so all of these things are connected in other countries um, that role um, is separate so the central bank will look after monetary policy and you will have a separate authority to look after and monitor the banks right um so but the core functions therefore of the banks of a central bank is to deal with the management of the currency and the management of monetary policy. So what is the role of the central bank in determining OPR? And how does the central bank use OPR to achieve um, its objectives? And, and why is it that the central bank gets to determine um, the OPR? Because the central bank has a monopoly on issuing of money. And that means that the central bank is always available to provide money into the economy. We are, sometimes we use the term liquidity. When we use the term liquidity, we're talking about money, money supply. And so if there's any shortage of money, you can always go to the central bank to get it. And that's why this, the, the central bank has this pivotal role. Hmm. So if commercial banks, for example, are doing a lot of business on one particular day, like we mentioned just a moment ago, and they need to get some money, they can borrow it from each other in principle. But if all of the banks are suddenly very busy, 
then they're going to struggle to borrow it from each other. But they can always go to Bank Nagara and Bank Nagara will always guarantee to give them the money that they need in order to make sure that they can transact all of the business that they need, all of the financial exchanges, payments, whatever it is. And uh, Bank Nagara will always be there to make sure that that will happen. And that means that they will always guarantee the stability of the financial system, the availability of the currency, and um, the convertibility of the currency. Because if you want to sell Ringgit, Bank Nagara will always be there to buy it. What are the factors that banks consider, I mean, in this case, the central bank, Bank Nagara, considers when determining OPR? Um, because, for example, right now, our OPR is 3%, right? What what are they thinking about when they when they decide whether they want it to be 3.5% or 2.5% or 5% or 1%, whatever it may be? What are they considering? Okay, so central banks have a mandate. Uh, and depending on how the central banks are structured, the mandate can be different. In the in the past, the central bank used central banks around the world in the past just did what the government told them to do. Um, and certainly when I started out as an economist, um, that was uh, in the United Kingdom, that was very true. I mean, the, the finance minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, told the Bank of England to raise or lower interest rates according to what he decided or what the government decided in terms of the policy. But um, during the 1990s, 1980s, and then the 1990s in particular, the most of the central banks around the world became independent. And certainly here in Malaysia, the Bank Nagara Act makes them independent of the government. Um, you remember just, just recently there was a, um, a question as to whether uh, Anwar as the finance minister should interfere in the interest rate. And he made it very clear that he doesn't, the bank, he doesn't interfere in the interest rate that it's set independently by Bank Nagara. And that's true. It is. Right. Certainly true. It's the, the the law requires that, and Bank Nagara is very independent in setting the interest rate. But then there is a mandate. So the question is how and how does it set the interest rate? Why does it set the interest rate? What is it that determines it? So Bank Nagara's mandate has three elements to it. The first is price stability, mm -hmm. and that normally the normal way we understand that is inflation. Right. So it. We expect there to be inflation. It's normal, uh, and normal inflation is is around two uh, percent. In Malaysia, it's just slightly less than two percent at the moment. You know, for twenty twenty three, it was two and a half percent. So sometimes it's a little higher. Um, and if inflation is around, let's say two percent or so, we consider that to be a, a signal of price stability, and that's the primary aim of. Um, all central banks, actually. And in some cases, for example, in the Bank of England, that, that is the, the, the target. Mm. In Malaysia, uh, Bank Nagara has two other elements. There's, the second element is um, sustainable economic growth. So it wants to set the interest rate in order to get um, a price stability consistent with sustainable economic growth. Right. So it has to balance the inflation with the growth. And then the third element of the mandate for Bank Nagara is financial sector stability, which is monitoring the banks, the bank's balance sheets, and making sure that they're strong. So Bank Nagara has actually two big 
um, departments. One is the monetary policy department, and the other is the financial um, sector, the financial stability um, department. And so you know that every, well, periodically, it produces a monetary policy report and it produces a financial stability report, and that reflects um, its its mandate. So for Bank Nagara, it has three elements, um, price stability, um, sustainable economic growth, and financial sector stability. And so it sets the interest rate in order to achieve all of those three things. Now, sometimes one is more important than another, but actually in most circumstances, um, they are all um, important to one degree or another. Let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. We will be right back after these messages. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan. And on the show with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. And on this episode, he's giving me the 101 on the overnight policy rate, also known as OPR. So, Jeffrey, what happens when the central bank brings down the OPR and what happens when you increase it? So, for example, in Malaysia, it's 3%. What would happen if we go to 2%? And what would happen if we go to 4%? Okay, so the... The overnight policy rate is the rate at which the commercial banks borrow money. In some countries, it's called a base rate. Mm-hmm. They have different names for it, but here in Malaysia, it's called the uh, OPR. And so what that means is it sets the sort of minimum uh, interest rate. That, um, but the, from the, the banks borrow at that rate. You and I can't don't go to Bank Nagara and borrow at that rate, but the banks borrow at that rate. Right. And so what it means is that the OPR then sets the all of the other rates that the commercial banks set. And that means that it sets the rates for all of the personal loans, all of the um, mortgages, all of the car loans, all of the credit card loans, all, all of that. But it also sets, on the other hand, the rates on the savings accounts. So... If Bank Nagara were to cut the OPR, um, that immediately that that, uh, that cut in the OPR would pass through the commercial rates. The commercial rates are always slightly higher than the OPR because that's the margin for the commercial bank to make their money. And but if the OPR falls, that would then immediately pass through into the commercial bank rates. You see this because whenever they change the interest rate, the commercial banks will then immediately issue a notice saying effective by 12 o'clock or midnight, then we're going to change our rate. Right. And that would, if so, if if Bank Nagara cut the rate, that means all the commercial um, rates would fall. That would mean that borrowing would be cheaper. Mm. And so more people would borrow uh, take out loans. It would mean that people who had loans already, the financing would be cheaper if they're on a variable rate, and so they would they would also borrow more. It'd be cheaper for companies to borrow in order to invest, and that means that the level of demand overall from consumers and companies and so on would rise. Also, it would reduce the rate on um, savings accounts and fixed deposits, so people would be less likely to save. And instead of saving, they would spend. 
So when you cut the interest rate, you get more spending from consumers and companies and more investment. And then that leads to an increase in demand. And so when you raise the interest rate, you get the opposite effect. Loans become more expensive, so fewer people take out loans. Those who have loans already have to spend more money financing the loan, so they have less to spend um, as disposable income. And then people save more because they get a better return. So raising interest rates reduces demand. And so monetary policy then has an effect on demand management. And it has a quicker effect on demand management than, for example, fiscal policy. If the government changes taxes, it does that once a year. So um, uh, monetary policy changes, interest rate changes could happen. In, in theory, they could happen every day. They don't, but <laughs> it, they happen much more quickly. What is the connection? I, I think you touched on this a little bit earlier. Could you dive into a little bit deeper the connection between OPR and inflation? And how does OPR influence in, uh, influence in inflation rate? And with that in mind, can the central bank um, manipulate OPR to manage an economic crisis? So, for example, um, something happens, um, a major global economic crisis or a, a regional one, and then there's hyperinflation and things like that. Could the central bank then step in, manipulate the OPR rate to manage um, the inflation? Okay, so this is uh, actually one of the main uses of interest rate policy, mm-hmm. or the uh, you know, the, um, and uh, in some countries, particularly in Europe, the United Kingdom, or the United States, developed economies pr- primarily. Um, the main way in which economic policy is used to affect inflation is through changes in the interest rates. So if you have high inflation, you will push up the interest rate. That will reduce demand and the reduction in demand will eventually bring down prices, you hope. (laughs) Okay. But we have something called long and variable lags (laughs) or or the monetary policy transmission mechanism. (laughs) which basically means we don't actually know exactly when these effects will will happen. But what we do tend to know, and there is a general consensus, that if you increase interest rates um, and push them high enough for long enough, eventually that will reduce uh, demand sufficiently for for uh, inflation to come down. Prices won't come down, but inflation will come down. Uh, in Malaysia, there is, of course, a, a connection between the OPR and inflation. And again, it does have this long and variable lag. Mm-hmm. For the full effect of an increase in inflation to take place, it could be 18 to 24 months. Um, so there is certainly a connection between the use of uh, interest rates and uh, the overall long-term inf- inflation rate. But um, in Malaysia, of course, we know that prices are also uh, controlled through um, subsidies um, and, and through price controls directly. And those also have a very significant effect on inflation. So it means that the burden um, on monetary policy is less, which is one of the reasons why it isn't necessary or hasn't been necessary for Bank Nagara to push interest rates in Malaysia as high as they have been in other parts of the world. So because Malaysia uses different different mechanisms to hold down prices. 
But there definitely there is a, a, a connection between interest rates and inflation. It's the main re reason why we have monetary policy. How much control does the government have when it comes to OPR? Earlier you mentioned that the Prime Minister, um, and, and I think many Prime Ministers in Malaysia always come out and say, because there's always this debate and say, you know, we are not involved. Um, you know, the bank is independent. They make the decisions. I'm not getting involved and, and so on and so forth. Um, so when you look at it, um, you know, governments and, and let's say OPR or, or the central bank and things like that, Conceptually, how much control does a government have? In Malaysia, how much control does a government have compared to, let's say, other countries? Or does it differ? So, for example, if you look at a country like Vietnam and China compared to, let's say, a country like the UK and the US um, and, and then Malaysia, are we, are we different? Do each of these countries manage, um, uh, you know, the, the OPR differently? Um, is the independence of the central bank also different in these countries? Okay, so the question of, in, of central bank independence is really important, and it became particularly important in the 1980s and 1990s. And so there is a consensus around the world, and most central banks around the world have um, a degree of independence. In fact, some are constitutionally independent. In, in South Africa, for example, the central bank is as constitutionally independent as the judiciary. If politicians can control all aspects of policy, including monetary policy as well as fiscal policy, that they will use all of those policy instruments to manipulate the economy in order to win an election. Mm. We call this a political business cycle. And what this means is that before the election, they will cut taxes, they will cut the interest rate, they will make everything cheap, 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 then the economy will grow. They will win the election. But then after that, inflation will go through the roof. Then after that, you have to uh, push up interest rates very much higher than they would otherwise be. And that's destabilizing. And that causes a political business cycle. And we saw a lot of this in the past. We saw a lot of it in the 1970s, 1980s in particular. And so the basic consensus on from, from economists is that um, this should be taken out of the hands of politicians because, as you mentioned, they can manipulate it for reasons which are not to do with economic management. And this is harmful in the end because it leads to um, high inflation, which erodes people's savings. It can lead to a recession, which causes people to lose their jobs. It's bad. And they're doing this only because they want to win an election. So you take it out. Then you give it to a central bank, which is independent. And what that means is that the central bank will set the interest rate according to the target that they have, the mandate that they have. So if the mandate is to have stable inflation and sustainable economic growth, what that means is if the politicians were pushing through fiscal policy to push up the economy to just be just ahead of an election or doing handouts or whatever it was, then the central bank could raise interest rates to damp that down. Hmm. And what that means is it would make it should make the politicians more responsible because they know that there is a counterweight to that type of um, manipulation of the economy for political purposes. And so the independence is important. So in most countries around the world, historically, the central banks have been owned and run uh, and directed by 
the government to some to some extent, not in the United States, for example, but certainly in the United Kingdom, that that's true. I mean, that the Chancellor of the Exchequer used to tell the governor to raise or lower the interest rate whenever he chose, whenever he chose. He didn't even have to wait for the end of the month, uh, you know, on a monthly cycle. It would be at any time he would just tell him to do it. Um, in, of course, in, 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 in even today in some countries like Vietnam and places like that, uh, the, the central bank is owned and run by the government. So it's not independent. But here in Malaysia and uh, in Singapore and most de uh, developed uh, monetary policy systems, um, the central bank is independent. And here, the Bank Nagara Act makes clear that the decisions are made by the central bank. Of course, they eventually they report to the government, but uh, they're accountable to the government, but the government doesn't tell them what to do. And um, I think it's the, the way that we understand this, whether it's happening or not, is to look at the record. If you look at the track record, and so if you look at the track record of Bank Nagara, you can see that uh, whatever might be the political environment, their decisions in terms of interest rate policy is set based on the economic data and not set according to political considerations. Um, I, I, they actually raised interest rates during the election campaigns last time. So that tells you they don't really take into account the political implications of this. They're, they're interested in the economic implications of the decision. And that's that's a sign of uh, real independence. And I think it's some that's something that central banks have to build up over many years in terms of their reputation. But I think it's something that Bank Nagara definitely has over multi, successive governors have, have built up and maintained that level of independence. So I think we're all quite confident that Bank Nagara is an independent central bank. Can you provide examples from Malaysia or around the world where changes in the OPR had a significant impact on the economy, either positively or negatively? Well, I'll give you a positive example and then I'll give you a negative example. I'll give you a negative example from somewhere else so, <laughs> so that Malaysians don't get upset. But I'll give you the positive example from, Malay from Malaysia, which has been during the COVID crisis, during the COVID period. Um, this is a very difficult period for everybody. Uh, and Bank Nagara brought down interest rates. Um, but they brought down interest rates in a very stable way they went down to historically low levels, 1.75%. But they resisted the call to push them down even further because that would be too much, uh, too, too low, because uh, real interest rates, which is the difference between um, the OPR and the rate of inflation, they were already negative. So they brought down interest rates to a level which was very low and which was helping to support the economy during a very difficult time. And then after that, they have raised interest rates um, in a very stable way. And they haven't had to raise uh, interest rates very much beyond the 3%, and 3% is really quite normal. So now we are in a, a range somewhere between 2.75% and 3.2% is normal. And 3% is dead in the middle of that. So it, it, they got back to that process using a, a, a very stable, very conservative uh, series of very small increments, which haven't bothered 
people too much. And they haven't had to push it, as in some countries, up to four, five, six, seven percent. They've been able to maintain it. And that's a very, very good um, track record. They have fewer um, increases in interest rates in order to get back to that 3% than, for, for example, than the Federal Reserve. And so it's been much more stable than the Federal Reserve. So that's an, an, an episode of very good monetary policy management. A, a period of very bad monetary policy management that I remember, which is hugely exciting, was when the United Kingdom was in the exchange rate mechanism. And at that time, we were trying to use the interest rate to defend the exchange rate. The exchange rate mechanism of the European Union was a way in which the member states of the European Union tried to control their currency, to keep their currency stable. Mm. And it was a, um, a precursor to the euro. Right. Once the currencies were all stable over a, a period, I think it was two years or more, they were able then to fix the currencies. And then once they fixed the currencies, they were able to convert it to a single currency. The United Kingdom was a member of the exchange rate mechanism. And we were trying to keep our exchange rate stable to the euro. But And, and the way you do that is through interest rate policy, interest rate differentials, as we mentioned before primarily. But the fact was there was so much economic turbulence and so much economic instability that it was very difficult for us to keep our exchange rate um, at the fixed level. So the government had to use the interest rate much more aggressively. And it pushed to a crisis. And the crisis went, you know, the, 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 our equivalent of the overnight policy rate went to 15% and then at 1.25% in order to try to get people to buy pounds. And it, you, it was unsustainable and the, the pound crashed out of the ERM. Um, and then uh, once it had crashed out of the ERM, they just gave up <laughs> trying to manipulate the interest rate and everything normalized quite quickly. Right. But that was a disaster in terms of monetary policy um, management. But um, a, a fantastic benefit to the... British economy, because then we, we we stayed out of the euro and we moved to the uh, flex, to flexible exchange rates. And then we were, we, were, we were in a much better situation than we were otherwise. Before we wrap this conversation up, um, Jeffrey, would you have um, some final thoughts or a final message on OPR? I think for this year, we, we don't really expect to see the OPR changing um, at all, unless, of course, there is some... Um, unexpected event, which by definition we can't forecast. There's no particular reason um, for, for Bank Nagara to uh, change the interest rate because we know that inflation has stayed, is slowing down and uh, prices are still rising, but at a slower rate. And we expect prices during uh, 2024, the inflation during 2024 to be um, pretty stable and pretty normal. So for the OPR, we don't expect there to be any particular um, changes, no news really, and no news is good news when it comes to the OPR. <laughs> so <laughs> look to somewhere else. I think uh, don't look at uh, Bank Nagara and OPR so much because everything's good and everything's fine. Look at the structural reforms and focus on the structural reforms and put a lot of um, 
effort and support behind the structural reforms, because that's what's going to be important to help to raise people's incomes in particular um, and to keep the economy growing. Jeffrey, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure, Dash. That was Dr. Jeffrey Williams. He's an economist at the Malaysia University of Science and Technology. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.